All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode three of Gotham Writers Inside Writing. A quick reminder that if you've missed episodes one or two, you can see the full episode on the Gotham Writers YouTube channel. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about literary fiction, but before we get into that, a few housekeeping notes as always. After we meet our panelists, you are welcome to submit questions for the Q&A portion of the webinar. After the panel discussion, I'll pick some questions from the audience and pose them to our panelists. There should be a little button on your, on your Zoom window that says Q&A. You can submit your questions there. Um, and at the very end, stay tuned for instructions on how to get involved in the Twitter pitch party. So on to the subject of the day, literary fiction. And as always, I'd like to begin with a quote, this one from Tim O'Brien. He said, that's what fiction is for. It's for getting at the truth when the truth isn't sufficient for the truth. Isn't that the truth? So today's episode is extra special because we don't just have two excellent panelists, but we have our author guest who is represented by our aging guest. And we also have the query letter that connected the two of them, which we'll be looking at in depth during the discussion. Uh, so without further ado, let's meet our panelists. First off, the debut author of the novel, Things You Would Know If You Grew Up Around Here, Nancy Wason Dynan. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Josh. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for being here. Thanks um, for having me. Absolutely. And and our second panelist is Curtis Brown literary agent Carrie D'Agostino. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Josh. It's it's great to be here. Thanks again for um for organizing this today. Absolutely. Happy to happy to have you both here. So uh, we'll start with Carrie. Carrie, we start every one of our discussions with a question like this. So I want to start with with your opinion on what you what is the definition of literary fiction to you? Yeah, sure. So um, again, thank you for having us here. Exciting to be here chatting about this. Um, and I know so so talking about literary fiction and the definition. So traditionally, there's been something of a divide I know between what readers consider to be genre fiction and what readers consider to be literary fiction. Um, and if we're working with that division, we might consider some hallmarks of literary, of genre fiction rather, to be the following. Uh, we might start with an appeal to wide audiences, um, so readers who gravitate towards mysteries, romance, science fiction, thrillers, action, historical, books in those categories. Um, we might be looking at books that adhere a little bit more to a specific formula. So for example, we can all picture the traditional arc of say, a romance novel. There's a meeting of two characters, uh, there's intrigue between them, there's some sort of obstacle that the relationship faces, and then there's the overcoming of that obstacle. And, and that sort of plays into the more conventional storytelling that we tend to see in genre fiction as well. Um, writers of genre fiction aren't always looking to reinvent the wheel with how they're telling their stories. There's a clear movement from exposition to rising action to climax, falling action, and denouement. Um, and along with that, there's a focus a bit more on, on plot. Um, as much as genre fiction might, fi might feature um, compelling, complex characters, the focus is not as much on who they are as it is on what they're doing and how what they're doing is affecting them. Um, so literary fiction, on the other hand, doesn't traditionally follow as much as a formula as what I've just described. Um, and it often features more creative or experimental ways of storytelling. Um, one example I always think of around this is my client, Leslie Petrick, um, whose no novel, um, Silver Girl, actually starts with a section that's called The Middle, uh, proceeds from there to the beginning, 
um, then to the end, but then to a final section that's called where every story truly begins. <laughs> um, and there's a clear reason for that, even though it doesn't sound like the clearest in how I'm describing it now. Um, but it's very much rooted around this character who isn't ready to acknowledge certain things about her past. And so we don't get to those things about her past until the end of the actual book. Um, but that becomes a huge part of her literary journey. Um, and it's a part of the climax that Leslie weaves into the narrative, because even when it's experimental, there still is that following of the traditional art. Um, this brings us to the next distinct feature of literary fiction, though, that focus on character over plot um, and the inherent exploration of, of some aspect of the human condition that comes with that deep focus on character. Um, and of course, all of this is wrapped up in the other classic feature of literary fiction, which is the beautiful writing that often accompanies this kind of exploration. Um, but all of that being said, I do always think it's really important to acknowledge that genre fiction, literary fiction, all of these categories, they're certainly not mutually exclusive, and it's definitely possible for writers to exist in both worlds. Um, at Curtis Brown, one of the examples we always use is that is our client Emily St. John Mandel's Station Eleven, which is literary fiction set in a post-apocalypse. Or, or you could also look at any of Ben Percy's novels, which are as likely to feature werewolves as <laughs> they are. Um, a reimagined Lewis and Clark in, in a different kind of Wild West. Um, so, um, yeah, there's, uh, if we're talking about traditional definitions, though, um, what people usually consider literary fiction to be um, is the focus on character and humanity along with that beautiful experimental writing. Oh, and I will start my video now. Thanks, Josh. <laughs> and thank you. Thank you, oh, for that, thank you for that in-depth answer. Yes. Uh, Nancy, yes. wanted to see if you had anything to add to that. What's your interpretation of what literary fiction is? So that was a really thorough answer um, that addressed a lot of the things that I think about too. Um, and I, I love Station Eleven as an example because I think that that um, Station Eleven does have that traditional arc, but does have that experimental um, part of it, especially the station, the actual Station Eleven part in that novel. Um, I do think that I approach it in a slightly different way, um, just because I think that I ended up. I think that this book ended up being categorized literary fiction because of the weird expositional parts. Um, but for me, I, I, I have to confess that I wasn't thinking of where it would fit when I was writing it. So I think as a writer, I'm just writing what, what interests me and, um, you know, um, playing with structure in the way that, that I, I am interested in playing with structure and um, that then the categoriz categorization happens after that. Um, so, Carrie, I'm impressed by how thorough that answer was. Um, you addressed a lot of things there. Yeah. Well, and I, I would also add to what you said, Nancy, that, you know, the, the advice that we always give our clients is not exactly what you just said, not to think about the category until you have the novel. And, and then we can start thinking about how to market it and, and how to reach readers in different categories. But, but it has to start okay. with the book and, and what um, the writer's vision is for that. Um, so, yeah, I agree with what you said, too. Yeah, and I definitely agree with the, the focus on language, too, um, that, that with the experimental, is, is the, it's paired with that focus on language that's often lyrical. Um, and for me, I think that, that that was the language I was interested in, like, trying to create. So, so yeah, um, different perspective, but a lot of agreement. So, Carrie, to, to follow up on this distinction between different genres, especially around this area. How do you draw the distinction between literary upmarket and commercial fiction? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so I think what, what I was saying about um, genre fiction that 
can kind of go into the same category as, as commercial fiction. That's usually what people are thinking of there. Um, and so if we then move into upmarket fiction, it's sort of, a, I don't want to say catch-all, but it, it often is used to describe books that fall somewhere in between those two ends of the spectrum. Um, and the, the client that I think about when I think about upmarket fiction on, on my list is um, Andrea Boboti's The Last List of Miss Judith Pratt. Um, and one of the reasons I think about that is because there's a lot in that book that does suggest maybe a more literary uh, fiction siding. Um, there's uh, two different uh, timelines that she's exploring. Um, there's a deep focus on the titular character, Judith Pratt. Um, much of the story unfolds around Judith's um, listing of an inventory that she's taking around her house, so there's some experimental writing around that. Um, but at the same time, there are other elements that you could classify as more traditionally genre. There's a, a murder mystery that's informing a, a big part of, of the overall story. Um, there's uh, complicated sister dynamics that are recognizable to anyone who's had a sister. <laughs> um, and, and then there are also elements of the 1920s timeline that read as more historical fiction. Um, so, so when you kind of combine all those two things together, you wind up with a book that asks uh, big questions that's very well positioned for book club discussion, um, but that's also very accessible. And, and those three things tend to be um, sort of the hallmarks of, of upmarket fiction. Um, and it's also worth noting, you, you'll hear from editors and, and agents a lot of the time that they're looking for something that's in that sweet spot between commercial and literary fiction. Um, and, and, you know, you can debate a little bit about what that actually means, <laughs> but, but often it, it is an editor or an agent who's looking for something in that upmarket space. Nancy, I find it interesting that you, that you didn't consider, like, especially in your query, which we'll get to later, you didn't identify it as literary and you said you didn't really consider yourself writing literary, yet you were adhering to a lot of the, I hate to say conventions because literary is not conventional, but you were, you're playing with structure. Did it, I mean, did it ever, did, when did it occur to you that you were writing literary fiction? Um, the, I, this is a really good question. Uh, and I'm thinking about it too in the, in the terms of what you just described, Carrie, as being, um, having big questions but being accessible. Um, I don't know when it occurred to me that, that it was literary fiction. I do feel like I was influenced by the books I was reading at that time, which would fall into the, um, the, the literary fiction category. Um, and for this book, I think um, I thought a lot about Samantha Schweblin's um, Fever Dream and um, the sort of momentum that went through that book um, and how one thing led to the next thing led to the next thing. But it's not like on a traditional three-act kind of um, arc, right? Um, and I, so the resolution for this book, I definitely, I definitely feel like is not, um, it takes it from, away from that commercial space, right? It, it's not a, a resolution that you might expect in a commercial book. Um, so I, I mean, I, I think I knew when I got to the end that it was, um, that it was not a commercial book, but I also, I, I have also tried to write commercial books books that would fit into commercial categories before and I knew going into them um, that I was writing those things um, so so I would I, I used to belong to um, a genre writing group and I would know that okay here's where I need to have this thing happen and when I was writing this book that's 
that's those weren't the questions I was asking. Um, like, when do we have this second act betrayal? When do we have this this dark moment where it looks like nothing can be solved? Um, so I, I knew that I wasn't following, and I, I feel like formula sounds pejorative a lot, and I don't want to I don't want it to to sound that way. But I knew I wasn't following any specific like genre formula. So, um, so yeah, again, a question I can't really answer. I don't know when I realized that. No, I, I think you did answer it. You answered it very well. Um, so Carrie, I want to sort of get one more, one more take on the difference between commercial and literary. Is literary, it's often said literary is a harder sell than commercial. Do you find that to be the truth? Um, I, I wish I could say no. <laughs> but I, um, I, I love literary fiction dearly and, and I work with a lot of it and, and I do, um, you know, it, it, it can be a tough sell in the traditional publishing market. Um, and I think that one of the reasons that that is, is that when you're working with literature that follows for the most part this tried and true design, um, while I, do, I, I agree with Nancy, I don't want to limit it to just calling it a formula, but, but literature that you can automatically classify, okay, who the readers of this are, um, then you're working with a readership that's a little bit more tried and true as well. And, and the result of that is that publishers have a more concrete sense of the kind of profit that they can expect and, and how to publish the book accordingly. Um, so, so in the more genre space, you can do that more. And in literary fiction, because there is this more experimental push, there's a more of a focus on that character development. Um, they don't have necessarily as it's more like rewriting um, how they're reaching the readers with each book and, and that's not something that big five publishing can always be um, as nimble about. Um, so, so it really just boils down to publishers are, are businesses and, and they can be very hesitant to, to take risks um, and, and literary fiction just because of everything that we've been talking about um, ha has more inherent risk to it. Um, but, but that being said, you know, we, we're definitely seeing um, different ways of publishing literary fiction today. We're seeing a lot more activity from independent presses, from, from small publishers, um, that I think is really pushing forward the conversation and, and reaching out to readerships in, in new ways um, that, that publishers, the bigger ones too, are, are learning from. Um, so I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic about, you know, one day it, it might not be as hard as it is now. <laughs> So Nancy, with this being your debut novel, were you thinking publication right away? Was that something that had been on your mind from the moment you started or was it kind of something where you got midway through and you're like, maybe I could get this published? So um, so I think it's, it, it, it is my debut novel, um, but it's not the first novel that I, I've written, right? Um, and I find that a lot of us have like a, a lot of novels that they've written. Um, and this was, this was the first one that I seriously queried. Um, that was always the expectation. I mean, not the expectation, but the hope. Let me say that. That was all with this one. I feel like um, by the time I started writing this one that I felt like I had um, practiced this craft for um, a while, that I have learned a lot, um, that I'd, I'd, I'd gotten a lot better from when I started. Um, it, it had been more than a decade since I'd been writing novels. Um, and um, so I don't... And that was the hope the whole time um, that that I was writing um, something that other people would read, but I yeah I, I don't know if that was the expectation. I think these are two different things. Mm -hmm. So I want to I want to shift into a little bit about what writing literary fiction is all about, and I, I think one one concept that always comes up in conjunction with literary fiction is this idea of the human condition 
So Carrie, I want to start with you and what yeah. this term means and how it appears in books. Yeah, that's a really good question. And um, I have never taken a course in philosophy. So my answer mm -hmm. <laughs> is uh, it's, it's the best I can do. But but when I think about the human condition, um, I'm thinking a lot about, about who we are as people, obviously, how we're interacting with the world, um, what we're hoping to accomplish in the world, uh, and what we're doing with the obstacles that are thrown in our path and sort of within and around all of that, how we're caring for our people and, and um, making decisions uh, for not just ourselves, but, but those that we care about. Um, and I know that's really broad um, and, and maybe that's why literary fiction can be so complicated because there are so many different ways to sort of go into that question. Um, but that's also what I love about it. And that's the kind of writing that I get the most excited about. So Nancy, yeah. In terms of your book specifically, do you see it as addressing this human condition thing? Did you consciously approach that or did it just kind of happen to fit with it? Um, so I, I have to agree with, with Carrie that it, it's a, sort of a broad answer. Um, I, I don't know. Um, I, I will say that I was specifically looking at something in the book and that is um, the question of what empathy takes from you. I think that we would all agree that um, empathy is a very valuable, um, worthwhile um, trait to have, but that, that it, it can also take from you. And so that was something that I was exploring. Um, so in some small way, I think, perhaps, um, I think that um, for me, exploring the human condition um, means like dwelling with complexity and like allowing people to be complicated and good in, in one respect and, um, and, and difficult in another respect. Um, I tried to be honest with my characters. Um, I tried to show, you know, um, it, scenes in which they responded in a very noble way and scenes in which they responded in a very selfish way. I also think that, um, you know, it, if you're talking about the human condition, the human condition is tempered with both good and bad moments. So, um, so I, I, this is such a hard question to answer, but I just tried to be honest too with not only the characters and their responses to things, but to the things that actually happen to the characters. So some good things happen to the characters, but also some difficult things happen to the characters. So, um, and then I really liked what you said about, about caring for the people around you, Carrie, um, because I do think that, that I was really interested in, interested in the relationships that people build um, and how sometimes those relationships are uneven. Um, and so that was definitely something I was exploring here. Um, I don't know if I thought of it in terms of like exploring the human condition, but I was definitely thinking in terms of empathy and about um, what that costs people. So. You, you both answered that very well. You should give yourself more credit for what you were able to explain there because I've been dealing with the, I've been trying to explore the human condition for a long time and I still couldn't give you a better answer than what you just gave. So thank you for that. Uh, so Nancy, one of the things that sets your story apart is the namesake of the book, the things you would know sections. Uh, can you tell us a bit about what your objective was with these and what they were? So, um, so I'm, I don't know that I had a real objective. I am, I find things really interesting. Like I get very excited about just information and I love, um, you know, I'm from Austin. I love that area. I love, um, you know, going somewhere and discovering that something had happened, has happened on a certain spot. Um, and so what I wanted to do is I wanted to put all of those interesting things that I discovered in the book. Um, and then that extended to climate change because that was part of, part of the question. Um, that, 
I was exploring in the book. Um, the challenge, I think, was how to make those work in a, in a narrative way. Um, like, how do, you, how do you put all this trivia in a book and then make it work? Um, and so I was really interested in connecting things to, like, the cause and effect in the story. So one of the, an example would be, um, in Central Texas, um, if there are purple blazes painted on a fence, um, that means no trespassing. Or even if there's not a fence, painted on, like, the trunks of trees. Um, and so you know you should not pass whatever line that is because it might be being monitored. And in Texas, you know, you might be shot, maybe. Who knows what, what somebody's gonna, going to do if you pass that line. And so I included that as one of those expositional sections, that little bit of information. And then, um, like, 30 pages later, we see one of the characters cross one of those purple lines. Um, so we know that, that, that uh, we have some information about what that means. So for me, what I really wanted to do was just include all of these things that I found so interesting, but then also to make them connect um, to the cause and effect of the narrative in the story so that they, they meant something. And, um, and I just, one more thing I want to add here is, is just, I find as a reader, one of my favorite um, experiences is when I have more information than the characters do. Um, and I just think that in, that is just such a great experience. Um, and so I try to increase that, that sort of irony where, where the reader is aware of um, something that, that the character is not. And so that, that, that adds to our worry or to the conflict or, or to something in the story. But the main reason I included those was I just liked them. I was really interested yeah. in them. So. I like how all these answers tie back into it's just what you wanted to do. I think that's great. Uh, Carrie, from the way I took these, these, the things you would know sections, it feels like something, you know, with the publishing industry always saying you have to do something that's the same but different. It felt like something different, something that, that you know, sets the book apart. Is that kind of how you saw it? And how do you interpret this whole you have to do something different? When there are so many books out there, how do you do something different? interesting question um and and to be honest like i can't say that i, I did really necessarily approach um these sections from that perspective immediately thinking about marketing i think more what i was thinking when i was reading it is that um it was so fascinating i was learning so much and and like nancy like nancy said um reading about you know what purple blazes represent in one section and then seeing the character encounter the purple blazes in the next um it just added so much more tension um to the story but also so much more color to the world that she was building. Um, so, so I think that um, that just got me really excited. It did give me a little bit of something to talk about more with editors when I was pitching the book. So I suppose from that um, marketing standpoint, you could make that argument. Um, but I, I think it was really just more just, I, I learned so much. It was, um, you know, and Nancy includes everything from, from the purple blazes that she mentioned, um, to, to beautiful snippets of poetry, um, to Carl Sagan's uh, pale blue dot speech, um, to, to lost silver mine. So there's just, it, 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 like, like she said, it, you know, it's, it's, it's trivia. Um, and I think people find trivia interesting and they especially find it interesting when it weaves into the narrative in interesting ways. And, and on that note, I don't want to spoil anything, but Nancy, you did manage to work a really fascinating um, subplot into uh, the things you would know sections. And, and I think that has a great payoff for readers as well at the end. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, so, Another, another thing I want to touch on before we get into the query letter, uh, since literary fiction is so character-based, uh, Nancy, the story is very focused on the main character, Boyd, and what's going on in her own internal journey. How do you keep things interesting for a reader whenever most of that journey and most of that advancement happens internally? 
That's a really good question. Um, and uh, you know, I, I think of other examples where this is true. I'm really interested in interiority. Um, I find myself really responding to that in um, novels. And I think of a couple of Stephen King novels, especially where um, where stuff, things happen. Um, I'm thinking of The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon or Gerald's Game, where things happen in the book. And I don't want to say that they're in defense, but so much of what happens is is the interiority of the character. Um, and it still keeps me turning pages. I, I just really respond to interiority. Um, I, that's a really good question. Why? Um, I think it it helps me to understand the character a little bit better. I find myself in really sparse novels um, where there's not a lot of interiority, wondering, um, wondering what, wondering why something happened. Um, I think that if you don't have that interiority too, you have to do a lot of like clue reading and like the way something happens um, or like the way somebody responds to something. Um, and I, I, I I think this is maybe even just a matter of like taste or aesthetic. Um, uh, but for me, I think of uh, like John Gardner's fictive dream where we, we want to be part of a story rather than to be aware that we're reading. And for me, interiority takes me into that fictive dream much more effectively than um, a, a story that maybe lacks interiority. And I, I think that's, that's, that's probably just personal preference, right? Um, that we all respond to something to artistically in different ways. So yeah, I, I don't know if I really answer that other than, than by saying um, I like it in other books. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Which is a perfectly fine answer. And I did want to follow up on that real quick. Uh, just out of, from, a, from a crafting standpoint, how much did you know about Boyd when you started writing the story? Or did you sort of like fill out a character profile and know everything about her? Did she surprise you along the way? Did you get to know her along the way? This is a really good question. Um, so Boyd is one of those things in fiction that, that happens sometimes um, for, I, I, I think, um, most writers at some point where, where you start to question the origins of that, of that thing and you can't really answer those questions um, because I don't, I don't know. Uh, that's, so Boyd came about because I was, so there's a scene very early on in the book where Boyd is gardening and like um, a bean tendril wraps around her. And that was the, the original scene in the book and uh, or the, the original scene that I wrote. Um, and um, I was, I knew Boyd was very empathetic. She became more empathetic to people as I wrote and less empathetic to the earth. Uh, that was, that was the initial um, plan for Boyd. Plan is such a like, uh, that's the wrong word, but um, she evolved, I would say, um, but she, I feel like I knew, it's such a cop-out answer, but I feel like I knew Boyd um, when I started thinking about her, um, and so she did deepen, for sure, she did, especially like her relationships with other people, but I, I knew that Boyd was, was highly empathetic, that um, it cost her to be around people, um, and that people would try to exploit that, so again... It was a good answer. oblique answer. answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a perfectly fine answer. Uh, so I have a lot of other questions I want to get to, but I want to share the query letter now uh, so we can see what it was that connected you to. So I'm going to share that real quick. Give me just a second. All right. All right. So you should be able to see the query now. For those of you that are listening and not watching, um, I'll go ahead and read it real quick. 
Uh, so I'm, it says, Dear Miss D'Agostino, I'm contacting you because you represent Anne Valente, and I think you would be a good match for my novel. Valente writes lyrical, place-based fiction that is often heavily researched, and my work follows in these footsteps. My novel, Things You Would Know If You Grew Up Around Here, is set in the aftermath of the Memorial Day floods of 2015 in Central Texas. These floods broke every river in Texas and resulted in massive loss for property and human life. Even today, people remain missing. In the novel, the young woman Boyd sets out across the backcountry to rescue a friend who has been trapped by rising floodwaters. In the process, Boyd, who has been acutely empathetic, who has always been acutely empathetic, realizes that she can see the world slightly differently in the wake of the storm. As she walks, she discovers that the edges of time have blurred and that the past is bleeding into the present. Uh, the narrative alternates with expositional sections, the things you would know, and these reveal ex environmental and historical information that gradually come to bear upon the larger story. These sections operate in much the same way as the wiring diagrams and schematics do and our hearts will burn us down. And then she goes into her, her bio. Um, so Carrie, when I first reached out and asked if you had this query letter, you mentioned that it was perfect. I wanna ask you what it is, as concisely as possible, because we will go into more detail, but what was it that struck you as so perfect about this query? Yeah, so, so right away, um, Nancy is mentioning a client that I've worked with, um, and not only by name, but by specifically mentioning what Anne does in her writing that Nancy is doing in this book. Um, and, and so that's right away showing me that she spent time with my list. Um, she's taken the time to research me and see whether I would be a good fit. Um, and she also sounds like she'd be a good fit because this is something that has been exciting to me in the past. Um, that description um, is just so intriguing. Um, I, I actually was thinking as you were reading, Josh, I, I think at, at least a few lines of this ultimately made it onto the jacket copy of the book, um, which is what we should be thinking about in these uh, sections of the query letter. You know, how do we ultimately want to be pitching this to readers um, in, in that concise way? Um, and then, of course, she's also showing um, the, the really significant background experience that she has that shows why um, she's the right uh, writer for this novel. Um, and the other thing that I, I always like to mention too is that Nancy at the end here, um, you say as your submission guidelines request, I'm attaching the first 50 pages of the novel. Um, and I do request online in my profile, I watch the query letter in the first 50 pages. And it's amazing how few people actually read that instruction and follow it. <laughs> so, so when I do see that from, um, from a writer, that is um, an indication to me right away that there's someone who, again, has taken the time to really research this process and is being very intentional about what they're doing, which says good things to me about how we might work together in the future. So Nancy, your, your opening is very concisely and personal, concisely personal to Carrie, uh, citing one of her other clients, as, as we've mentioned. How much research had you done before querying? Had you read Valente's book before you queried her and thought this would be a good agent? Um, yes, absolutely. So um, I, with my book, I had gotten sort of some feedback that, um, that I should get rid of those expositional sections and some feedback that, that people liked them, you know, with, with, um, with readers and with workshops. And I knew that I really liked them and I wanted to keep them, but that they were very unusual. And Anne Valente's book was a really good example of somebody who did something similar. Um, not in quite the same way, but, but she, um, it, in both, in Our Hearts Will Burn Us Down, but then also in, in a book that came out after that, um, the desert sky before us, um, Valente includes these sections that, um, that to me feel like primary sources almost, like we're discovering the story along with along with the characters. Um, and so I, I 
I wanted to, to query Carrie as the agent for, for those books because, uh, because I felt like um, those were things that, that I really valued and that I wanted to keep but that were really different and that I could easily see being, um, being sort of edited out. Um, so yeah, I, I had read Valente and I, I, that, was, that was very important to me. So. And how many other people had you queried? So, um, so the first, so, so I actually did two small rounds. The first round I had gone to Sewanee the, the year before and I had met, um, three agents there who were interested in seeing more. Um, and I, so that was the first round. Um, and then, um, one of the, you know, it, it, one of those agents never responded. Um, one agent said, um, I said, I basically I'd like more a little more momentum in the book and then and then one agent said um, I'd, I'd really like to read this I've got a lot going on right now it's gonna take me a while to get to it um, and so then I did um, I did the next round which I think if I'm if I'm correct it was three people again so mm -hmm. all right so so Carrie this query arrives in your inbox were you the first to see it did you have a reader do you have the, a reader that screens initial queries or did you open this up and, and read it first well, I, I opened this up and, and read it first um, and um, I, I would say I, I immediately opened it when I when it popped up in my inbox because again I could see that Anne was there in that first line um, and then it just sounded really fascinating and, and I think I, I read the first 50 pages if not in that same sitting then uh, maybe later that night um, and then I think I requested I actually looked back at this in, in preparation for this webinar but I think I requested um, the novel maybe the, a couple of days after getting the query and then I wrote to try and set up our our call um, maybe two days after that I just I couldn't put the book down once I did start reading it <laughs> I'm, I'm always curious from an agent standpoint because with how many queries you get I feel like you have to know pretty early on that you're going to offer that you're interested in offering representation did you know that as soon as you read the query or did you have to see the pages first or I do have to see the pages first uh, because you, you want to make sure that even when you have a fantastic query letter, you have to make sure that the manuscript matches that, of course. Um, for me, if I'm reading something that quickly um, and having that hard of a time putting it down, it, I, I know my, my gut is telling me, you know, this is something that I want to spend more time with and, and I really want to be able to work with this writer. Um, but the decision that I make to actually offer representation doesn't come until we've had the chance to actually speak on the phone. Because um, I, I can I can love a book and, and not be the right representative for it if we don't have that personality fit as well. Um, and I always I, I do tend to be pretty editorially involved um, with, with my author. So I always like to have that conversation as well. Um, but I know with Nancy, I was absolutely walking into that call thinking like, oh, wait, I really want to offer. I, I hope that we get along. Um, and then and I did. <laughs> so another thing that fascinates me about query letters is the comparable titles aspect of this. Now, Nancy, you used one of one of Carrie's uh, clients, which is awesome. Um, I wanted to ask Carrie, you've mentioned this a little bit already, but how big of a role did that play? And in general, how big of a role do comparable titles play? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think a lot of this conversation actually comes back a little bit to what we were talking about in terms of the literary, commercial, upmarket. Um, the, the best value of the comp titles in, in the query letter and in submission letters that we ultimately draft for editors um, is to really indicate to that next person on the chain, whether it's the editor, the agent, the salesperson, the retailer, um, who is going to be buying this book. 
um, where it is going to sit in the marketplace. And, and that ultimately, it helps me start thinking about where I could ultimately pitch the book. Um, it helps the editor and the sales team start thinking about how much um, they can offer for the book, um, what kind of um, sales techniques they'll have to use to, to connect with people. Um, and it's, it's ultimately, it's all just adding to the kind of toolbox around the book. You give us more to work with when um, you give us those titles to be thinking of at this time. So, uh... Nancy, I have to ask this, and I know it's always a dicey question for writers, but how confident were you when you sent this query? Did you did it feel like every other query out there? Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't I, because I don't think that you can ever really gauge this. Um, but uh, there's a reason that I queried this book. Um, I felt like I I had put in a lot of work and effort to. Um, become better at this and um, I put in a lot of uh, I put in a lot of effort to really make this book the best that I could um, yeah I, I, I felt confident with what I was doing but I, I don't know what if I I felt I also felt like um, I don't you know I felt like the, I was genuinely querying Carrie um, and not, you know, um, sending a bunch of a, a bunch of queries out. So I felt like I gen genuinely felt a connection to Carrie. I was not 100% sure that that would be reciprocated, right? Um, as as always happens when you're sending um, emails out. Um, so I felt good about what I was doing. I was not 100% sure that, that there would be a response. So right. I like what you said though about genuinely querying carry instead of just carrying a or querying a whole bunch of agents out there. I, I think that's an important distinction to draw. Um, so I want to talk a bit about the way you started your query. So you deal a lot with the setting right from the start, three three lines in a row that that just establish the setting, and setting is such a big part of of literary fiction. So Carrie, I wanted to talk to you about what how big of a part setting plays in in not just in the query, in this particular query, but in literary fiction in general, what, what, how big of a role does setting play? Um, I have to say for me, it, it plays a big setting. I, I know, um, you know, we're, we're talking about the human condition a lot in this, in this conversation. And, and I think that in addition to wanting to understand the human condition through literary fiction, I'm always looking to understand places through um, literary fiction and, and often how the two um, connect. Um, and, um, you know, we, we were talking a little bit earlier about um, what in uh, things you would know if you grew up around here um, keeps things moving. Um, and, and I wanted to just share, you know, I, I think that a lot of what Nancy does here is to really effectively weave in the tension of the time and the place around what these characters are experiencing. Um, the whole book un unravels over a period of a couple of days. Um, and it's very clear, um, you know, what the missions of each character is. Um, Boyd is off to find her friend. Her mother, Lucy Maud, is trying to find Boyd. Her neighbor, Carla, is also trying to find Boyd. And what they encounter in the landscape, which really does take on this position of sort of the fourth protagonist in the book, um, is, is what defines their journeys from there. Um, but there is always this pressure of they need to get to where they are going and they need to get there before it's too late. Um, and you know, the, the landscape plays into that in a really significant way and what they're discovering around the landscape plays into it in a significant way. So it, it neither surprises me um, nor, you know, I, it, 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 the, I think the setting has the place 
that it does here in this query letter because it has that in the book and and that makes sense to me and, and i think it's one of the things that readers um will really appreciate about it when they pick up the book so nancy this this might be kind of a, a silly question because it correct me if i'm wrong i believe you're a native texan is that what drew you to this setting was this just a very personal setting for you to, to deal with um uh, that's a really good question. So I am a native Texan. I was born in Austin. Um, I have spent ha roughly half my life in Austin. I went to undergrad in Austin. Um, I, I haven't lived in Austin in, in a while, um, although I did spend a year there a couple of years ago. Um, and so one of the things that happens when you feel really connected to a place and then you, you leave and come back and leave and come back is you, you notice all of the things that change, right? And, and um, so it's like this really where it if you stay, um, these things disappear slowly, and so you don't notice them as much. Um, but when you when you come back, it it's it's just this real sense of acute nostalgia. I I, I don't even know really what to call it. Um, but I was definitely interested in in the idea that we're losing these things, right? Um, so I, I think that when I return to Austin, um, I'm not in Austin now. Um, that I'm always surprised by what we've lost in a year, in six months, something like that. Um, so definitely interested in the setting, but also interested in um, the setting as it changes. So. Mm -hmm. so one last thing about this query before we get into audience questions. I find it interesting because there's a magical realism element to your story as well. There's a scarecrow that gets up and walks. There's, there's vines that kind of take on a living, a living persona. That isn't really touched on in the query, though. Did you, Nancy, did you leave those yeah. out on purpose or did you consider these magical realism? No, you're absolutely right. I'm, re I'm looking at this query now and um, it should really mention that, um, that magical realism. And the only thing that, so there's the acutely empathetic, which, which might sort of hint that, that there's something extra there um but then the edges of time and the past is bleeding into the present um i'm looking and that that's the only indication that there's a magical realism element and, and i agree i i if i were to do this over i would i would i don't know that i would say magical realist um well one thing i'll, I'll but, add that though is that that in and valenti does um in in the same kind of way have magical realism yeah. operating in some of her books so i think between that and the past bleeding into the present um, which absolutely caught my attention right away. Um, I, I, I guess I couldn't say for sure. It's, it's been a few years. I, I don't know for sure if I read this and knew to expect um, those elements, but I wasn't surprised when I encountered them. So yeah. I was excited. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'm going to take this query down now. We're going to get to some questions. Actually, before I, before I, is there anything else I didn't mention about the query that either of you wanted to draw attention to before we get into audience questions? Nope. That was really thorough. All right, <laughs> great. So I want to start with a question. Nancy, I'll direct this to you. Uh, how do you approach the research part of your writing? You mentioned a lot of research, um, especially with the, the things you would know segment. Uh, do you mostly do the research beforehand or afterwards during the rewriting or how did you handle it? Um, I would say a mixture of both. Um, so I, I'm always interested in like historical markers and um, and guidebooks. I, I love those kinds of things. Um, so I'm always doing 
that kind of research without realizing that, that uh, well, maybe I kind of realized at this point that I'm always kind of looking out for things that I, that I want to include in something. Um, but then there are things that come up, like, um, so I've heard all my life that there's more gold in the ground in Santa County than there is in circulation in the world. Um, and so that, I, I, I wouldn't consider that research as much as, like, growing up in that spot. Um, but then when I want to include that, I'm a, I want to go find out what that's all about. And so then I'm doing a mixture of, like, um, traveling to those places if that's feasible. Um, uh, there's a Texas State Handbook Online that's really helpful, Texas Parks and Wildlife. There are all kinds of oral histories in the Texas Hill Country. One of the things that I find really, really interesting is that there's a giant army base um, outside of uh, Austin um, called Fort Hood, and um, it's, it's giant, um, and that they moved people off of that land uh, roughly 100 years ago, and before they did that, they went and recorded all of these oral histories, and so, um, so that's, that's something that I, that I turn to sometimes. Like, there, there's a lot of archiving going on in the Texas Hill Country that I find fascinating. So I, I start by being interested in something, and then I, I do extra research um, when, when the story requires it. So next question goes to you, Carrie. As an agent, when you get a query letter for a literary novel from someone who has no writing degrees or publications, what do you need to see in that query letter in order to believe the project is worth reading? Do you look differently at those query letters? No, I, I wouldn't say I would. I, I you know, if, if it's um, a query letter, again, that, that it, uh, to make it stand out the most, um, does reference some work that I've done, does use comp titles um, to help me see where it could fit into the marketplace, and, and does give that um, really engaging um, description of, of what the book is about. As long as I find that description interesting, um, I'm going to open and, and start reading and, and take it from there. Um, I think that more where I see, you know, if, if an author does have an MFA or some other degree or, or previous credentials, then that just allows me to start thinking about, okay, again, and if we're thinking of the toolbox, okay, so these are things that I can use to, to make editors pay more attention, that I can build into my strategy for, for pitching this book. Um, but, but if a writer doesn't have those, then that's, it's just, you know, that's just not something that we're adding to the toolbox, but we'll just come up with other things instead. Mm -hmm. And to follow up on that, a kind of related question, does having an online presence make a difference for literary fiction authors? Well, I, I think that you do want to have somewhere that agents can reach you, that, that readers can find out about your work. So, so that author website is an important thing to have. Um, as far as um, some of the other social media platforms go, um, Twitter, Instagram, et cetera, um, what we usually suggest to authors is to find the platform that works the best for them. Um, and, you know, for some that's, you know, image heavy, and that would be Instagram. For some that's, you know, engaging in conversations, and that's Twitter. Um, but I think that the, the thing that we recommend across all platforms is that you really, you're not, the best way to use um, these platforms is to engage in that literary conversation, is to support other writers as much as you're promoting your own work. If you're just going online and saying, buy my book, buy my book, um, then, then you know, you, it, it, it goes back to a little bit of what Nancy mentioned before in terms of establishing genuine connections with people. Um, and, and that's not going to feel as genuine, that's not going to feel as connected. Um, whereas if you do engage in the literary community, there are a lot of really wonderful people out there, a lot of wonderful writers um, looking to, to, you know, support everyone, all these authors as a whole. Um, and, and that's where it can really be most useful to, to I think, writers um, working with their, their publications. Mm -hmm. So Nancy, next Great question. Point. 
to you uh, as a writer, how do you choose the book's narrator or, or point of view? Was it just kind of what felt right? Cause that's kind of what I'm getting to think with, with this book was that you just kind of did what you wanted, but at what point did you settle on the point of view? Um, so Carrie, we had a conversation about this early on with this book. Um, so what I wanted with point of view in this book is just, this sounds terrible. I wanted to do whatever I wanted with point of view, but not have anybody notice. Um, but to, to be able to, to move from head to head without it being jarring or dis, um, disorienting. Um, so there's, yeah, there, I, I don't want to say too much but there's there are two different points of view it, there's like an omniscient kind of um that mostly follows Boyd but then there's also a different point of view in here um there's a first person that that happens occasionally um I don't know that that was a really conscious decision um but I will say that I have been writing some first person stuff for another project I'm working on um and that is it, it feels like such a relief um, I, after writing, um, after writing third person for so long, uh, with first person though, it, that comes with its own challenges. Like how do you how do you reveal information when that narrator can't be there to see that information? But um, but I I think the pro I, I think it's the voice I start the project in, and I very rarely change that. I think that's sort of one of those intuitive decisions um, that I'm not really sure where it comes from. But. Thank you. Uh, so here's a question that we get a lot, and it's one of my favorite to ask. So Carrie, I'll ask it to you. Uh, what are some of the biggest query letter no-nos that you will see come up when you're just like, absolutely not, just because of this one thing? Um, I, I do. I, I probably shouldn't be, I take this as personal as I do, but I definitely notice when my name is just butchered, <laughs> which, you know, I know it's not the easiest last name, but still. Um, an absolute, another absolute no-no is don't ever send your letter and, and whatever sample pages to more than one agent on the same email um, that's something that everyone is just going to go ahead and delete in all likelihood um, you want to make sure that you're sending it to an agent who is who represents books in your category that, that might seem like it's obvious but it just it saves everyone a lot of time um, because if they're not someone who's experienced in your field they're not someone that you want representing your book to begin with um, that's another place where comp titles can be really helpful as you start to think about where your book does fit into that literary conversation what your comp titles are you can start doing research to see who represents that um, like like Nancy did with, with me and with Anne and, and that can um, help you to start build um, your submission list and be able to make that personal reference um, but but it is it, it is clear again like Nancy said in terms of feeling you can tell which letters have been genuinely crafted to me and, and which just have my name plug in, plugged into them. Um, and, and I think that the more you can make your query letter um, personal in that way, um, the more chances you have of standing out in the right ways. Mm -hmm. So Nancy, a uh, question going back to the things you would know sections. Uh, how did you structure the alternating between the, the story and these, these expositional sections? Did it happen naturally as you wrote, or was it carefully planned? It was definitely not carefully planned. It was an experiment um, that I tried. I don't know if it happened, if I would call it natural, um, because it is so weird. Um, but one of the first things I had to try to figure out was how to signal that those were the expositional sections. And that's where that, that title, Things You Would Know If You Group Around Here, because those expositional sections have that, so, so you're clued in. But then they also um, have, like, um, 
a quick, underneath that title, there, there's a quick line in italics that say what the thing is. So it's like a, a summary of that section. Um, so part of what happened, I think, with this book was, was trying to figure out how to signal the, uh, those sections and basically like how to teach somebody how to read this book because it's, it is different. Um, so th that was part of what I was trying to figure out. I definitely didn't want to um, have those in like dialogue, you know, or to have those in like interiority where she, where to go back to the purple blazes where Boyd is thinking, oh, purple blazes mean no trespassing, right? That um, I wanted the, I wanted, I liked the exposition and I wanted to figure out how to put that in there. And, and actually, something that we haven't mentioned about these sections yet, which I think is important in this conversation, is that um, things you would know if you grew up around here, there's something about that that immediately evokes, invokes the reader um, and makes them a part of the journey because they're things that the reader would know if they grew up around here as much as they are the characters. Um, and I think that that does a lot for, for you know, the reader engagement throughout the narrative, too. It makes us feel like we're a part of this. Mm. I like that. Uh, so a question for Carrie, and I think this is a good question because I, I still find it interesting how Nancy, you didn't classify your book as literary fiction in the query letter itself. So Carrie, do you find it useful or inhibiting to have an author characterize the work as such, to put literary fiction, commercial fiction, women's fiction, mm -hmm. so on and so forth? Oh, I, I definitely find it useful. If, if for some reason I, I have read the query, I've read the novel, I'm talking with the author, and I don't think that it's necessarily the right category, um, then maybe that's a conversation we'd have together before going out to editors. But it does help me sort of set my expectations for, for what I'm going to be reading as I open it. And Carrie, another quick one to you. Uh, within how many pages in the manuscript do, do, does it go before you know that you want to keep reading? Like how far do you normally get before you can tell if this is something you want to keep going with? Mm -hmm. um, on average, I think that's somewhere around say the first two or three chapters of a book, when I see it on submission, I can start to feel myself, you know, if I'm starting to think like, oh, you know, what is, if I'm getting really engaged with the character's journeys, if I'm starting to think about, oh, I know this editor who's, who's gonna be really excited about this, or, or when I get to the point certainly where I'm starting to think about, oh, this is so great, but like, what if we did this with it? And I'm starting to sort of turn on the editorial part of my brain, um, that, that's when I know, okay, there, there's something here. And, can't wait to see what's next. Gotcha. Two to three chapters is so much longer than I actually expected. I expected like two to three pages. So that's good to know that yeah, you have well, that long. Query letter does really give me a good sense of what I'm going to be opening to. So, so I, it's, okay. I'm not, I, I don't want to be misleading. I, I, I definitely don't have the bandwidth to read the first two or three chapters of everything that is submitted to me. <laughs> um, okay. But, but once I get, once I am in, intrigued enough by the furry letter to, to be reading the manuscript. Um, yeah, that, that's usually how long I'll try and give her projects. Um, All right, so two last questions before we wrap up here. Uh, real quick, I just want to hear three suggestions, three uh, literary novels that you feel like every aspiring literary writer should read. You've mentioned a bunch throughout, so if you want to repeat some of them, that's fine, but we'll start with, we'll start with Carrie. Um, well, the first recommendation I would make <laughs> um, but but also I, I mentioned Emily Mandel earlier. I think that she's a really great one to to follow in this space. Um, let's see. Um, I'm just looking at the books that I have here, so I'll I'll take a second to also 
plug um, Liza Whelan. She's a really brilliant um, literary uh, fiction writer as well. This is her most recent novel, Paris 7am. And she also does a lot of really um, wonderful work around um, making the interior space of a character accessible and exciting. Um, so, so yeah, those, those are a few that come to mind immediately. Perfect. <laughs> and Nancy, any suggestions? Doesn't have to be three, just as many as you can. <laughs> Okay, um, yeah, I'm thinking about them. And um, so for me, uh, like, I'm gonna show my Texas bias here, but Larry McMurtry is just so funny and um, witty. And I think we think of literary fiction as being like really lyrical and ponderous. And um, uh, McMurtry does something different with it. Um, definitely Lauren Groff and Karen Russell are coming up for me. Elena Ferrante, those Neapolitan novels, she does so much with that tension between those two women that it goes for a thousand pages and it, you just keep reading it. Um, definitely Samantha Schweblin um, too, but also I'm thinking, I'm sorry, this is way more than three, but uh, Carmen Maria Machado, if, if you're working in like, um, any domestic fabulous space or magical realism space. I would, uh, Carmen Maria Machado, Helen Oyeyemi. Um, there are a lot of readers that I think, or writers that, who I think of are really redefining um, that. And, and you know, Isabel Allende, um, gorgeous, gorgeous writing. Yeah, I have a lot. <laughs> <laughs> That's just perfectly fine. So last question. Uh, maybe one sentence or so of advice that you would give to literary writers, people that want to write literary fiction, what is one thing you would tell them as advice? We'll start with Nancy this time. Um, so, uh, yeah, there, this is a, a tough question. So I think that the advice I would give people, um, that I would give students or, or anybody who, who, who is wanting to write literary fiction is, um, I, I would tell them to try to be interesting um, and this can mean a lot of different things. I remember in my MFA when I was trying to be inter interesting, and um, it reminds me there's an there's an Emily Dickinson line about art is a house that tries to be haunted. I'm not I'm not getting that line quite right, but um, that at some point I realized that that I that the things that I found interesting, other people might find interesting too, right? So so I didn't have to like create this fake interest. I just I. I brought in things that I found inherently interesting. Um, I don't know how, I think everybody comes to, comes to this in a different way, but the, the advice I would give is to, to be interesting and not just try to be interesting, which is not great advice, but, but to try to figure out the thing that you bring that, that other people would be interested in, so. Carrie, how about you? Yeah, I, I think that's great advice. Um, and, and I would also just add to, to your, as, as a writer, you're a reader too. And um, the more you read um, books that are existing again in, in the same kind of world that you're hoping to bring yours, um, the, the better off you'll be in terms of, you know, finding a way into that world. Um, just knowing again, what books are you're, you're going to be in conversation with because it is a, a literary ecosystem full of authors, full of um, people who love books. And, and the more you know what's happening in that conversation, the better. Mm -hmm. I 100% agree with that, yeah. All right, so for everyone that wants to get involved with the Twitter pitch party, uh, I'm gonna go ahead and share, sorry, we're going a little bit over today. I just wanna share, we just put these up on the website for how to get involved with uh, Pit Gotham. This is, if you have a literary fiction work of your own that you want to pitch, uh, go on Twitter, use the hashtag PitGotham, 
uh, and you have until Friday to do this. So you have until Friday at midnight. Uh, we will go through and pick out some of our favorite pitches and send them on to Carrie for feedback. So we also have some tips and tricks. I'll go through them real quickly. Make sure that you condense your book into a single tweet. Multiple tweet pitches are not allowed. If you have more than one book to pitch, you may pitch them all. Just make sure you separate you separate tweets for each. Um, also, try to come up with a, com a good comparable title or two. It's a great way to, to sort of classify your book very quickly. Uh, point number three, more of a tip, but focus on what makes your book unique. Usually that's the protagonist and the main driver of the plot. You don't have to worry so much about setting the scene because you just don't have the space to do that. Uh, point number four, end it with a hook, something enticing to get the agent or the agent wanting more. Um, and then lastly, again, make sure you include hashtag P-I-T-G-O-T-H-A-M. If you don't include that hashtag, we won't be able to find it on Twitter. So make sure you include that. That does take up space in your tweet, so make sure you, you leave room for that. Other than that, thank you all so much for joining us as we talked about literary fiction today. Uh, next Wednesday, we will be talking about young adult fiction, uh, and registration is currently open on the Gotham website. So hopefully I will see you then. Until then.